Hello everyone, welcome to Series 6 of the Hay Festival podcast. We're continuing with our Hay Festival highlights alongside behind-the-scenes chats with some of your favourite writers and thinkers on the interests and other pursuits that feed into their writing. This week we're with novelist, writer and general polymath Joanne Harris. Her latest novel, A Narrow Door, is a psychological thriller and the third in her Malbury trilogy. We'll join her afterwards when she chatted to me about her various other passions. But first, here she is talking to Sophie Rayworth about the characters and how she built them. Well, as you said, it's part of a sequence of books. It stands alone, but if you have read the first one, Gentlemen and Players, and the next one, Different Class, you'll know that there is the same protagonist throughout the three books, and he is a Latin master called Roy Straitley. Um, When I wrote Gentlemen and Players, I didn't think I was going to write about him again, but he stuck with me, and so has St. Oswald's, this fictional school, which, which is not entirely unlike a boys' grammar school in Leeds, in which I taught for quite a long time during my formative years. Um, and Straitley is... He's basically one of the good guys, but he has a lot of bad habits. He's a little bit misogynistic. He's, he's very antagonistic to change. He's not a fan of things like email and mobile phones and whiteboards and men in suits taking over posts that masters in gowns used to have in the old days. And... And he's right on the edge of retirement, but he has nothing to retire to. He has no friends outside of St. Oswald's. He has no family left. Retirement would kill him, and so he's hanging on. And every year, something something happens to destabilise St. Oswald's. In Gentlemen Players, uh, there is a series of unfortunate incidents. In different class, there are some even more unfortunate incidents. And poor old Straitley finds himself challenged by them every time. Now, in this one, A Narrow Door... The, uh, the, the incident, if you like, is even more disturbing to Straitley because it involves the new head, who is a woman. For the first time in 500 years, they have a woman head, and she is doing all kinds of alarming things, including introducing girls to the school. And she is the other narrator of this book. Her name is Rebecca Buckfast. I like her enormously, even though she's a monster <laughs> and has done many bad things to get where she is. And she has a story to tell, too, and straightly on the first day of term is approached by a group of his boys who think that they have found human remains on the site of one of the grand new buildings that the new headmistress is planning for the new revamped St. Oswald's. And he goes to Buckfast, uh, who he still refers to as headmaster, to tell her about this. And not only is she not surprised that they've found this, but she seems to know a lot about these remains, and so... The story is a story within a story which goes quite far into her past and his. And and it's it's a puzzle that the reader has to unravel right until the end. She is an extraordinary character. I mean, she is very multifaceted. I mean, she she has an appearance. She's a very beautiful woman. Well, she was. She, She is now a woman of a certain age, and so she feels that she has left that part of her life behind her. And to her, it's quite important to have done that. I really enjoyed writing about a woman of a certain age, but uh, <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> no, but she, she, but she, there's, there are, I mean, it's quite, it's hard to talk about your book without you really think about which puzzles there are that you mustn't unreveal. But um, she does, she as a young woman, because it's written, it's a dual narrative, isn't it? So you set it in 1989 and 2006. Um, and 1989, she's this beautiful woman and she uses all her charms, and yet you, there's all kinds of stuff going on behind her. 2006, and she's really manipulating what is going on. 
absolutely, yes. She is, in a way, a woman who has been the victim of her circumstances all her life. She is profoundly damaged because in childhood she endured uh, a very unhappy childhood. And it was marked by the disappearance in mysterious circumstances of her older brother, Conrad, who vanished from school when she was five years old. And she was there. But for some reason, the trauma is such that she has never really remembered what happened, was not able to tell the police anything except that Mr. Smallface took him away. And Mr. Smallface is her, her childhood monster, who's actually followed her into adult life because... There's been this big hole in her family for, for all her life. Her parents have never recovered. Uh, there's always been this absence in her. And as a mother later, she's felt the absence in her heart, um, this inability to feel things. So she's, she's a damaged person, but she's also a person who is willing to do pretty much anything to get what she wants. And what she wants is partly to find out what happened to her brother and also partly to fight back at the the institution in which she's ended up working, this, this boys' grammar school, this patriarchal environment, which is about as hostile to her as any environment can ever be. And the, the title of the book, A Narrow Door, there's a, there's a physical reference in the book. There's also, I mean, on, on numerous levels, metaphorical, there's the narrow door of a woman getting into a very dusty boys' school um, and also the narrow door of memory. Memory is a big theme in the book, and her memory, which is something that runs through some of your books, uh, the, the way that smell, scent, brings memory alive. Mm. Yes, I, I, I write a lot about this, about the, the idea of scent and taste and how it connects to memory, partly because I have synesthesia, which means that effectively I can smell colours, and that means that I tend to process the world through scent and colour quite a lot. Explain that. How, how does that work? I'm not quite sure how it works, but um, with me, basically, it's, 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 it's a cross-connection in the brain. People with synesthesia will experience one set of stimuli, let's say vision, and it will cross-reference with another one, let's say, in my case, scent. Um, so, for instance, those luminous jackets that our ushers are wearing smell quite strongly of fish. <laughs> which is I, I know that, that there is no fish in the room unless somebody's you know got a haddock there on the front row so I know that's, that's, that's what I'm smelling I also know that when I don't look at them the smell of fish disappears so I, I know that really? that's, no, that's synesthesia really oh, so you look at them and you can literally smell fish absolutely quite, quite strongly what else? Um, well red a bright a nice bright poppy red always smells like chocolate to me Wow. And so, um, so, so there's that. But yes, I mean, you, uh, your dress is 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 a whole there mix. Are a lot of things. There are a lot of things <laughs> Fish, in there, but the, the, gen but the the overall impression from that is a sort of quite sweet vanilla smell, uh, which probably comes from from the bright colour in there, because dark colours don't really have much of a smell for me at all. But but this is it. I mean, we were talking about scent and memory. That's one of the ways that I process the world. And one of the things that I write about a lot in my books is about the different ways in which people process the world. I've come to the conclusion that actually none of us can be quite sure that the way we process things is going to be the way other people process things. And that feeds into the idea of memory also, because how we remember the past is not necessarily how somebody else who was there and who witnessed the same event remembers it. And a lot of my books are about this, this, this false intimacy that we have with memory 
and what it can mean to us, and, and Rebecca Buckfast particularly is haunted by a series of memories which may or may not have any relationship with the truth of what really happened. Um, the narrow door as well, though, as I said, it, it refers to a, a woman just sneaking in. I mean, she becomes this, this, this very traditional 500-year-old school, and all of a sudden she is the headmaster, headmistress. Um, and you have some... I mean, the, the things you write, though, that she says, I've, I've written some of them down because uh, it's wonderful. I, found, I had found an opening in the patriarchal facade, not quite a door, but a weakness. I've never understood why men think of us as the weaker sex women are built for endurance. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's a very Rebecca Buckfast thing to think. But she is built for endurance. She is built not only for endurance, but also for, for law-breaking and rule-breaking and actually doing, breaking almost anything as long as she can get in. But she has an image of men being allowed to enter these institutions through the main entrance, the, the, the entrance is for them. Women have to kind of find their way in uh, because they're not welcome. And she has never felt welcome within this, this environment that she's chosen to, to make her career. Um, and, you know, looking back at, uh, at me when I was in my 20s, uh, when I first started at Leeds Grammar School, as it was then, uh, it was like teaching in Gormenghast. It was... To me, it just seemed like this ancient building. Bits of it kept falling down. I had mice. Um, I had pigeons that came. I had a room in the, in the, you know, at the top of a stone staircase in this kind of loft. Um, and it was astonishing. It was all really strange. And all the teachers seemed to be men. And they all seemed to be really old. Um, and, and here was I in my 20s out of you know, a, a stint at a comprehensive school in Dewsbury, and this was the, the, the most different environment I could visualise. And I ended up loving it and finding a home there, but it wasn't easy, and I, I had to fight a lot of unnecessary battles to get there. How many women were there teaching at the same time as you? Were you very much in the minority? I think there were three. Out of how many? 200? <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. It was, it, there was a large staff and it was mostly dominated by men of a certain age and a certain background. In those days, they, they wore black gowns to teach in. Um, and there, there were all sorts of traditions that I didn't know about and, and things that you weren't allowed to do. Corridors that you could only go one way down. Um, and even, even dress. I, I remember when I was, when I was very new... Um, there were two deputy heads. They were called the second and the third master. I, I had no idea who the first master was. He was just, he was, he was, he was just out there. But uh, the third master pulled me into his office, Mrs. Harris, a word. And so I went in and followed him. And I was wearing this, this rather smart navy blue trouser suit. And he said, Mrs. Harris, you, you're wearing trousers. And I said, yes, well, so are you, third master. <laughs> and, and he said, Mrs. Harris, ladies... Ladies at the grammar school do not wear trousers. They wear a frock or a skirt. So the next day I rocked up there wearing a red PVC miniskirt and <laughs> knee boots and went in rather early before too many of the boys were there and, and accosted the third master in his den and said, look, I've, I've taken on board the dress code of Leeds Grammar School, but if you, if you felt that it was possible to update it, I've also brought the trouser suit. And he looked at me for about half a minute like this and, and said... 
wear the pants. And, and so, I, and so I, I won that small battle. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to get this from every single member of my department. And I did. One after the other, these little battles I had to fight. And so I gave Buckfast that story. I was going to say, I've heard that story. It's in there. The book. <laughs> it's there it in the is. book, almost exactly as it happened. And I just thought that, given that she was in quite a similar situation as me, I, I did give her a number of my experiences. I just thought maybe... Maybe she would handle the situation better than I did. Um, and indeed she did, but you'll have to find out how. To watch the full event with Joanne and Sophie, you can sign up to our Hay Player at hayfestival.org forward slash hayplayer. After a very long book signing, I grabbed Joanne to find out more about her many different interests and working practices, starting with how she divides her time between different ventures. I don't really. I mean, I kind of take opportunities where I can and I work when I can. And very often it feels like I'm kind of clawing back time from all the other things that I do to actually write the things that I'm paid to do. But, uh, you know, I think I've, I've managed to, to juggle it pretty well. And did, was COVID any kind of a change for you in, in how you sort of divided time between work and free <laughs> well, time? it was like the, the first time I'd actually had proper long lengths of time to write at home in 20 years. I just haven't done so much actual sitting down at my desk and working. Yeah, I, th- I think a lot of us found some weird different freedoms. And Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm aware I'm really privileged. I, I had space, I had time, I, I could afford to work from home and that was, it was, it was, it was good. In many ways, it was, it was helpful to me. I mean. So uh, I also hear that you're an advocate for authors' rights. Can you tell us any more about that at all? Well, I'm chair of the Society of Authors, um, which is basically the, the Authors' Union. And so we, uh, we lobby Parliament, we look at issues with copyright, we look at contracts issues, all kinds of things that are basically important to, to authors. And authors are not always that, that good at standing up for their own rights. And so it's, it's good to know that there's an organisation behind you and, and we offer a contract service for anybody who feels in need of it. And it, it's very good. It's, it's, it's worth the membership just for that, I think. Do you feel like it's given you a bit more confidence, actually, as a writer to be behind the scenes and, and sort of supporting writers in that work? It does help a lot to know what's going on. I think sometimes it can be quite mysterious for an author starting off sometimes, particularly an author who isn't based in London and who doesn't know any other authors. There are networking possibilities, but it's also good to know that if you have a problem with your publisher or your agent or somebody you're working with, that the union has your back and can advise you and can sometimes speak for you. Um, and it just gives a lot of confidence, I think, to any author to know that they have that support. I hear that you were in a band when you were 16. I'm still in the same band, in fact. It, it's, it has been going for a long, long time, but I, I am in the same band. <laughs> we have a stage show, which is basically original music and stories and an element of theatre. And, yeah, we, we've, been, we've been doing a number of gigs, actually, now since, since live music is coming back. We, we did two last week. Amazing. Are they are they all local? Your bandmates still together? Um, they are. They live locally, but we we tour basically anywhere anywhere anyone wants us. Was it quite emotional? I would imagine after COVID, kind of coming back together and being able to rehearse again. It took a long time. Yes, we hadn't really seen each other in nearly two years. We hadn't played together. Had you practiced? Uh, well, to a certain extent, we had, but it's sometimes quite hard to practice when you are in a group with other people. And so there's not much that you can do alone. Um, yeah, so it took us a little while to get back moving and we've done three gigs now. And, and I think we feel that uh, we've, we've got a new bass player because our other bass player left and went with his 
snazzy young new band. <laughs> <laughs> and they're all very young and very good looking. And and I, I did, he was he was great. He was he was a very very good bass player and and. Uh, and, uh, but we knew that he'd move on eventually because uh, he, he had a number of other irons in the fire. So we've got another bass player who's now very good also. And, uh, and so we're, we're continuing moving in our, our usual direction. We're going to do some more recording and bring out another CD later this year because uh, we've had that on the cards for ages, but we just had to put it on the back burner because we couldn't, we couldn't get round to it. Yeah. Did you have any, uh, any posters on your wall as a teenager, music or otherwise? I did. I had a poster of Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds right above my bed. It was that, that, the classic picture of the war machine over London. Um, and I, I had some other, some other posters. I had, I had a poster of uh, William Waterhouse as the Lady of Shalott right opposite it. So it was a bit of an eclectic collection. But, uh, but yes, I had those two, definitely. Do you ever feel like you see some of those childhood interests coming up in your own work? Always, I think the things that mark you as a child are often the things that you pursue later as an adult. So, I mean, the Waterhouse thing is a case in point. Um, the second book I wrote before I wrote Chocolat, uh, before, before I became a professional writer, my second published book was all about the world of the Pre-Raphaelites. And it was, uh, it was a kind of ghost story set in, yes, set against the background of Victorian London and Pre-Raphaelite art. And, and I must have carried that obsession around with me for a while from having that poster on my wall and, and researching those, those painters to, to writing a book about them. And then I still, I still feel that a lot of what I write about was there in some form when I was a child. Do you feel like there's much of a divergence for you between when, when you're researching and you're reading to work or when you're just in your own thing, looking at your own interests, just not imagining it will end up anywhere? It's not really like that with me. I don't do formal research. What I tend to do is I get interested in something and I will read about it or find out about it over a period of years and then eventually a book will come of it. But it's not a conscious process. For instance, the whole pre-Raphaelite art thing, where I never set out to write a book about the pre-Raphaelites. It was just an interest I'd had for years. And the same goes with the folkloric and the, the mythological books that I've written. I never sat down and said, right, I am now going to research Norse mythology because in a sense, I've been doing that all my life. And so it was the product of a life study. And so it's often like that. So I get interested in something quite early on and then I'll collect information about it and somehow it will manage to squirrel its way into a book and I'll realize that actually, yes, that's where it came from. Do you, do you have anything like that with objects or resources, physical things? I do have a number of... I, I used to in the old days when I didn't have a desk and I didn't have a study or a shed in this case. Um, I, I developed a process that I thought of as having a portable desk. Um, it wasn't really a desk at all. It was my laptop with two objects. And there was a stone from a beach in France. And there was um, a frog-shaped paperweight that used to belong to my grandfather that used to sit on his desk. And I would put them at either end of my laptop and that would be my workspace. And I found that through a process that I guess you'd call meditation or something, I found it was quite easy to, to create the headspace using those two touchstones, if you like, yeah. so that I could work anywhere in any circumstance, which was important in the days where I was a teacher and, and I didn't have a designated workspace and I didn't have a lot of time. So I, I used to just, you know, work on trains and um, 
outside on a park bench or in the car or, or whatever. And then it worked for me. It was, um, I still have those two objects on my desk in my actual designated workspace now. And, and I sometimes still take them when I'm traveling abroad so that I can work in hotel rooms and still have that familiar sense of being in a place I can work in. Was that, was that a conscious choice originally or, or did that just sort of start happening? Um, it came from, tangentially I suppose, it came from another area of research. I was very interested, particularly in my teens and twenties, I was very interested in the occult and astral projection and meditation and I got, um, I, I got quite knowledgeable about certain areas of, yeah, I suppose, creating imaginary spaces. And, and so I applied it to my, my work technique because it just happened to fit. But I'd also been trying to teach myself things like lucid dreaming, which, which I did eventually teach myself through a process of self-hypnosis and reading other books. So, yeah, you see, my, my interests are eclectic. Yes. They do come from all sorts of areas, and, <laughs> and they find their use in all kinds of funny things. You know, creating imaginary desks is not the purpose I expected to get from those years of, of researching astral travel or whatever, but that, that's, that's what happened. Have you seen those, those objects actually end up in your writing ever? Sometimes I put things in my writing that are around me. Um, or sometimes they just happen to, to sort of find their way in there. And people who know me will, will know that I've done that. And they're like little Easter eggs, I guess, yeah. for the, the very few people who will actually understand why I did that and, and cool. what it means. Um, dreaming, then. So are you, you're quite into dreams and, and do you keep a journal of them? I do, yes. I've got, uh, I've got a little book that I write my dreams in when I wake up immediately. Because you do have to write them down. You always think you're going to remember them, but you never do uh, unless you write them down. And it can be annoying at first, but it does become a habit after a while. So if I wake up, in the middle of the night and I've dreamed something, I will write it down. And in the morning, unless I've written it down, I wouldn't have remembered a thing. So yeah, I, I do that because I'm... You can train yourself to remember dreams much more than you think. A lot of people tell me, oh, I don't dream anymore. That's not really true. They've just forgotten how to remember it. And it's, it's, it's a technique that you can teach yourself and you can get better at it. And um, I've got reasonably good at it over the years. Absolutely. Why, why, do you know why it is that we don't remember dreams? I think that there's a lot going on and mentally there's only so much you can carry in your memory and dreams are not very useful to a lot of people and very often they're in a hurry, uh, the alarm's gone off, they want to get dressed, they want to get washed, you know, writing something down in a dream journal just isn't a priority and so they get out of the habit. It's a bit like a foreign language. If you know a foreign language but you don't use it, you will get out of the habit of using it but you can teach yourself to pick it back up again because the knowledge is there in your brain it's just a question of telling your brain that it should be using that not yeah. much yeah of course and um, so also i would imagine you were talking about hotel rooms then i imagine you've had to travel a lot for for work all the time and are often in hotel rooms in in random places yeah and um, what's it like for you in those spaces do you do you feel quite content in that in that environment nowadays i quite like them the thing about hotel rooms is that they are to me, they're sort of liminal spaces. You're on your way to somewhere else. You're never going to go back to that place again. It's usually a bit of a, a neutral space. There is nothing that you have to do there generally. You're not going to you know, notice that the carpet needs hoovering or something and feel that you have to do it, which is something that happens if you work at home. Or you, and you can yeah. get room service. Um, you can wake up early in the morning. Nobody's going to bother you you can do some work. I mean, I, I like particularly to do that when I'm on tour because there's this, very often my sleep patterns are upset anyway. 
and so I'll wake up very early, do two hours work, then get breakfast. And, and then I've kind of got my day in before my day even starts, which is, which is nice for me psychologically, because if I leave work behind for too long, you do, if you abandon a book for a week, it goes feral. And yes. you, you have to basically tame it all over again, and that takes time. <laughs> so I, I like to, to keep things on the go to some extent while I'm traveling, because that way I don't have to, to start the process of rethinking the book and, and getting intimate with it again. Do you use meditation much in prepping for, for writing work? I, I kind of do. I mean, nowadays I've got a sort of hypnotic trigger, if you like. I, I don't have to go through the whole process of meditating and relaxing because I taught myself some triggers. So I can just go, right, OK, one, two, three, I'm now in the zone. And, and that, that helps. It means that it saves time. I, I don't have, you know, time-consuming rituals because I don't have all that much time to consume. I never did. Even when I was a teacher, I had to be aware that I only had the time that was available, which was sometimes 10 minutes, 20 minutes. And so I, I learned to use it, and I still do. What about um, sort of relaxing and trying to do nothing? I found an old article where you're talking about how much you sort of enjoy just mooching and, and lounging about. And Are you quite good at kind of guilt-free, sort of just not really doing anything? Yeah, I think I got out of the guilt aspect of it. Uh, about a year after I left teaching. For a while there, I, I was still in teacher mode and I really felt that I ought to be doing things. Mm. Um, but I, I, I eventually evolved rhythms of my own and I've realized that actually doing nothing is never doing nothing. It's very often, it's mental health self-care. It's regenerating, it's, it's regrouping your forces, it's allowing time and space for thought. And it's so important to anybody but to a writer particularly for that to happen you can't always be be moving all the time you have to you have to regroup when it comes to hobbies then i wonder what what your kind of attitude is to things like that can you think of something that you've the most you've spent on a hobby in a pursuit of it oh my um i suppose the most i've spent is 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 on musical things because as an amateur band we have more equipment than any other amateur band that, that i know but we have been going a long, long time. We've been going since I was 16, and so I think we can, we can be allowed the luxury of this. But yes, I, I suppose so. I, I don't spend a huge amount of money on anything, really, but uh, I bought a new flute recently because I'd been playing my grandfather's old flute for nearly 30 years, and, and I thought it might be quite nice to get an upgrade, and I realised that actually they don't make flutes like that anymore and the new ones are very different and very easy to play compared to my old one and it was it was quite nice to have that bit of a learning curve again a little bit um, and i just wonder if you have any kind of interest that you're pursuing at the minute that you can imagine maybe might end up in a future project well it's funny um just before covid and well during covid i guess i took up running i'm not really built like a runner i'm not um, a natural runner but I did the NHS couch to 5K. And I also, I mean, I've also yeah. been, been working with Naomi Alderman and, and writing stuff for Zombies Run. And so I, I just really wanted to play Zombies Run properly. <laughs> and, and then I got, you know, I, I, got, I really got into it. And, and, and I had started doing park runs. And I'd started really enjoying it. And then COVID happened and park runs stopped happening. And then I got cancer and I had to get through the whole, the whole chemo thing, which kind of wrote me off for a year. And I'm now just coming back to it and feeling able to to do that again. And that feels good. That feels, um, 
it, it feels as if I want to write about it at some point, the whole experience of having gone through those things and running having been a kind of story arc that took me through all of that. I think that, that, might, that might turn up somewhere in a book. I can imagine it doing it. Thanks for listening to the Hay Festival podcast. Join me next week when I'll be diving into childhood games, life in the public eye and fitness with Labour MP and writer Jess Phillips. If you're enjoying our podcast, do let us know by giving us a rating or telling your friends. This podcast was hosted by Poppy Evans and produced by Shabier Nachado Achanith. We'll be back next Thursday.